Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. A new exhibition at the Museum of Contemporary Arts takes a look at the massive flooding that Detroiters experienced last summer and asks what water means in all its forms and influences in our lives. Filmmaker, activist, and writer Dream Hampton will join to talk about her new work. And then we'll hear from former U.S. Poet Laureate Billy Collins, who will appear at next weekend's Midwest Literary Walk in Chelsea. That's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. If you think about it, water represents a really broad spectrum of life and death for us, of creation, destruction, and renewal. We know that better than just about anyone here in Michigan, a state that is surrounded by the largest system of freshwater in the entire world. It's what makes the Great Lakes region so uniquely vibrant and full of life, and it's also what sometimes threatens our safety and security. The violent storms that are fueled by our lakes have long sunk mighty ships, and destroyed the creations of men and women on the shores. And now we in Detroit are experiencing a really enhanced form of water destruction. Massive flooding that destroyed homes and belongings and lives all last summer. The water rose in the streets and the alleys and yards, and most important, in people's houses, often in the basements where it submerged things and submerged memories and surfaced emotions that a lot of us were just not prepared to confront. That flooding and the consequences of that flooding are the subject of a new experimental video short by award-winning filmmaker Dream Hampton. Freshwater is the name of that new short video by Dream Hampton. It is going to screen starting today at the Museum of Contemporary Art here in Detroit. And you can see that video at MoCAD through August 14th. Dream Hampton, welcome back to Detroit Today. Are you there, Dream? I'm here. Oh, there you yeah, are. Yeah, good. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. That's Hi, okay. Stephen. Hey, Dream, Thank how are you? Thank you for having me. Yes, it's great. I'm it's well. great to have you here. I want to have our listeners really get a taste of what you've done here. So let's take a listen to uh, a little, a little bit of fresh water. Like most people, I have an existential dread when it comes to thinking about climate. I think about what it would look like if Detroit suddenly became home to a bunch of climate refugees if Michigan is a safe place and we had all the fresh water and we had all the fresh water Uh, Dream you and I talked about this work the last time you were on the show when I asked hey 
what are you working on this year? And you mentioned <laughs> that you had two new short films coming out soon. So now we know at least what one of those projects is. So tell us about Freshwater uh, and what inspired you to make this video. Yes. And, and the first one um, actually came out a month or two ago. It was it's on the L.A. Opera website. And I'm, I'm proud of that, too. And weirdly, it also in, involves water. <laughs> um, so water, I guess, is the theme. Um, Freshwater is a film that I made during the pandemic. That We're still in the pandemic, but at the height of the pandemic, when we were also isolated and and I was home and looking, you know, out my window. I can't quite see the Windsor Tunnel from where I am, mm-hmm. um, but it, but it's just around the corner from my window, and and borders were closed, and and things just felt really small, and um, that feeling made me turn inward, and I started thinking about what was happening in my old neighborhood. I grew up um, on Islam between um, Kirchville and Charlevoix and just south of Jefferson and Fox Creek in that same neighborhood, you know, folks are having to basically bail themselves out. Um, it used to be every spring, but increasingly it's a lot more often. Mm. And it got me thinking about basements um, as the foundations of homes and as a place where we store memories and that made me start thinking about my own memories as a childhood <laughs> and Belle Isle and, you know, and, and, and when I think about foundations, I think about, you know, Black people being the foundation of Detroit since at least mid-century. And um, I started thinking about my own family's migration here from Alabama. I started thinking about the things that are changing and, and water's constant movement. Living in downtown Detroit, um, you you really do see the demographic shifts. You feel it a lot more than you would in, say, some neighborhoods. And um, without judging those things in ways that I might do in other parts of my work, <laughs> I um, I just I just wanted to sit with that and meditate on it. And that's what this film is. Yeah. So you had a really interesting quote in the free press talking about this film. You said. I see how things disappear. Just being a native Detroiter, I've experienced and seen erasure happen so often that I know how important it is to do this kind of record keeping, which is connected to memory, which is what Freshwater is about. That disappearing, that erasure gets to, I think, a point of real anxiety and tension right now Mm -hmm. that's not just about the flooding, um, which of course is causing all kinds of anxiety and tension, but but about this this larger context that you're talking about of change and how quickly uh, the city is starting to feel very different than it did when when you and I were growing up here. That's right, and you know this is a complicated story. This isn't. I've seen just straight up gentrification, you know. Um, I I, I witnessed and experienced it in Brooklyn um, where I moved in 1990. um, And it was a very casebook example of that. In Detroit, the displacement felt very different, you know. Um, Without getting too digressive, (laughs) I look at um, 
so much. And, and I've heard you, you know, talk about this and and sometimes frame it this way. But I, I look at so many of the battles that are happening in, in public schools right now as a cover for like the larger and, and ongoing attack on public schools. And like so many of these battles, it started in Detroit first, you know, um, I think about the Koch brothers kind of, you know, deciding to wage war on public schools in the 90s. Um, mm-hmm. And 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 so that alone is a, is a displacement. And I'm I'm not saying that we, as Native Detroiters, as Black Detroiters, aren't responsible. I also remember corruption from the very top. I remember superintendent of schools, Detroit Public Schools, being arrested, being um, found guilty of of fraud and embezzlement. Right. Um, so this combination, this kind of tsunami and storm of things, and I think of schools first because this is one of the reasons that Black Detroiters moved ourselves out of Detroit, you know, mm-hmm. um, and to places like Canton or Harper Woods or, you know, not fancy suburbs um, that we ended up in uh, simply because we were looking to send our children to decent schools. And so, again, the story is complicated. And then you have you know, a report that came out yesterday um, in the Metro Times um, uh, led by some really amazing scholars up in in, um, Ann Arbor about, you know, the way that Detroiters were forced out of their homes basically by a tax fraud committed by the city and state. So, you know, there were all of these complicated ways um, that Detroiters were kind of forced out of, of this kind of beautiful dream that happened, you know, in the, and complicated, but beautiful <laughs> dream that existed, you know, in, in the mid-century. Um, and by that, I mean Black middle-class homeowners um, who had migrated here um, from the South and had really made way for the kind of childhood and lives that you and I experienced growing up in the 80s. Yeah. And yeah. 70s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, talk about what you're doing in this in this film and the way that um, the way that you're using both, of course, uh, images, uh, but but also ideas and sound to try to tell to try to tell this story in a in a fairly short uh, in a fairly short piece. Yeah, I you know yeah this is under 10 minutes, I had done some pretty straightforward and um, dare I say, <laughs> to be critical of my own work, didactic um, work in in the past couple of years. In 2019, I released three documentaries that were all pretty straightforward, um, Surviving R. Kelly being the one that most people saw, but I mm-hmm. also did two others, right? And for me, being able to do something that wasn't me kind of unpacking something so straightforwardly, something that this isn't quite experimental in form, but that was more connected to the way that we remember things, like in wisp and in vaporous pieces of memory, you know? Mm-hmm. More like a poem, quite frankly. Um, I, I had done a bunch of essays and I wanted to do a short poem. <laughs> and, um, and that's what this that's what this film is. And yes, Sterling Tolls, um, 
who is also showing at MOCAD. I'm a part of an amazing show with two other art artists that I admire and, and happen to know. I admire them greatly and I happen to know them well. Um, Nep Sidhu from Toronto um, and Sterling Tolls. And Sterling is, both of them work in all mediums and Sterling is also a musician. So his music um, is, he's actually using the sounds of, of different bodies of water throughout the area. And that is part of the soundtrack of this project, um, the sound of water itself. The other part of, of this film is me talking, being interviewed by Sterling. You only hear my part of it, but me being interviewed about, by Sterling about growing up in Detroit. And we couldn't keep everything, of course, but we talked about everything. We talked about the little mobile pools. I don't know if they, I know you grew up on the West side, but on the East side, there were a couple of things I, and I remembered when I was talking to Sterling, <laughs> one was the vaccination kind of RVs that used to come around the hood. Mm -hmm. um, and the other were these mobile pools on the back of flatbeds. I don't know if y'all had those on the west side. <laughs> I but, don't know. I don't remember. That. <laughs> yeah. The, the, you're talking about My, the, 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 what did they call that? The swimmobile, right? Swimmobile, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I do remember that. I remember that my mom yeah. wouldn't let us get in that, right? She was like, <laughs> that seems dirty. <laughs> you're carting this oh, pool they, all around. I think it was 80% chlorine. You just kind of got out <laughs> smelling like bleach. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, my um, one of, I have two photo photographers that I collaborated with on this. Um, Desmond Love, who had been already shooting um, video, and then Eric Paul Howard, who had only shot, um, only done stills before this. And Eric, who's from the Southwest, also remembered the swimmobiles. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, um, a, that's such a, those are such markers of, I, I, at least I feel like they're markers of that black young experience. And I don't know why I associate it with, with African-Americans, but I do. And maybe it's just because, you know, when, when you were a kid in the city at that time, um, you know, that, that's who was here and that's who was participating in those things. And so, for me, it's not just Detroit or or Detroit in the '70s and '80s. It's it's Black Detroit, and, and maybe that's exclusive and and not cool. But uh, it's just the way it's just the way it always strikes me. It, well, it's what it was. It's a demographic fact, right? Right. Right. But it, it, what also what we're just describing is a time when the city city invested not just in social services but in recreational services. Yeah. I learned I'm in that swimmobile which is provided by the city, you know, to relieve kids on East Side. I lived in a two-family flat. My mom was a waitress, my dad was a mechanic. We didn't have money. Sometimes my mom would take us on this big road trip out of out to Metro Beach. <laughs> it was actually the, um, it was actually, and this is a, a juxtaposition to go from like giggling about that, but it was the first place that I'd ever, I was ever called the N-word by an older um, really? white woman. I can remember it so clearly. Yeah, we were going into the, from the parking lot into Metro Beach and and I was six years old and and, and she said, what are you N-words doing out here? Wow. Um, but um, those those were services that the city uh, was providing again 
uh, vaccination, you know, these these RVs that I remember, but also recreational. I learned how to swim at the um, YMCA. I can remember when the Coleman Young Center opened. And by that time, I was such a good swimmer that I was helping other people to learn how to swim. And so that divestment in Detroit is a part of the displacement also, you know, losing those services, some of them essential like vaccination and some of them recreational, you know? Yeah. Um, I remember I talk in the film about remembering when my grandmother got older, she moved over to Robert Bradby Drive in a house, a really decent um, apartment building for seniors Mm -hmm. uh, right next to the Coleman Young Center. And we would walk down to Hart Plaza, which back then the riverfront was kind of, you know, being built and new. And and I just remember feeling like the city was ours, you know? Mm. And and you don't know how unique that is until you go to other cities and see the way that Black youth are corralled and moved along and harassed in mm-hmm. public spaces. Um, and we that, had some of that ourselves. I can remember, you remember the Dearborn boycott? Sure. Not, we, no, we were boycotting Fairlane, right? Right, <laughs> because, right. Right. But that was because of... We were being treated. Mm-hmm. That was because of uh, the way that the security guards were, were acting as my memory of Fairlane. But, but also, wasn't that around the same time that the city passed that ordinance that said only residents could be in their parks? which I, I I will never forget that um, because it was it was the first time that that I I think I was aware of the kind of subtlety of uh, of racism or the or, or the way that people try to hide it right it didn't say no black people it said only residents and Absolutely. Um, yeah. and I was always I, I remember saying how do you know who's a resident uh, <laughs> <laughs> and 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 by the way, the, the Detroit area are like the leaders in that kind of apartheid, right? You know, uh, again, again, I grew up on in Gross Point, right on the, I mean, in um, on the east side of Detroit, right on the border, the southeast side, so right on the border of Gross Point. And I can remember being invited into one of the Gross Point parks, and all of the kids are going through the gate. You know, who, they also are only for residents. And then all of a sudden we get stopped <laughs> um, and, and we're a guest, you know, and, and, you know, we're giggling about these things, but these were things that were happening to children um, and they had been happening to children for decades. This is obviously a part of the Jim Crow legacy. Uh, we've seen the pictures of uh, Heather McGee writes a whole story about, you know, uh, white towns rather than integrating pouring cement into their pools, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, We've seen that awful iconic picture of a a white man throwing bleach into a pool. Um, But we've, you know, we've kind of got away from, you know, what was Detroit, right? The thing that made me feel safe about Detroit is that for the most part, I mean, you know, Dearborn and, and Gross Point were their own things, right? But for the most part in Detroit, you know, I felt quite safe, you know, up until... You know, crack hit the streets and there was this kind of bloody capitalistic fight for enormous amounts of money. Right. So up until the, you know, the wars around territory and and money um, around the selling of that particular drug, the 70s, I felt and I know that we have the kind of halicon days, this, this, you know, rose colored glasses on our childhood often. But when I even compare it to other places, I know how good we had it, you know, in Detroit in the seventies mm. as mm. black kids. Yeah. I mean, uh, one of the things I remember too, is that 
I feel like we had a sense of the place that was really uh, just the exact opposite of what the external view of of the city was. And and they're not unrelated, of course, right? The external view of the city was changing because it was African American and and people were were deriding it all the time. Um, but I, I can remember really clearly going to see the movie Airplane. And there's a line in that movie where they're they're in some dive bar and people are fighting and knifing each other and and all that sort of thing and and the the, the narrator says it was worse than Detroit to describe mm. the bar and I can remember being stunned by that because for me I was like well what's so bad about Detroit like I, I lived here and uh, we had parks and we had these rec centers and we had so many people. Uh, I, I just remember how many people there were in the city back then. You could just go outside your house and find people to play with and run around with. And, you know, it, it, there was such a sense of community and like you say, home and that it was for us. Uh, and, and the external view of it was, kind of the opposite. It was just so different. I mean, um, uh, people really hated Detroit was what I came to learn. Yeah. That is one of the reasons why I can't stand when I see people, uh, ripping off our, our black Detroit versus everybody. I'm like, don't, what is this Toronto versus everybody? You guys aren't hated. (laughs) (laughs) Never dealt with this myth of black incompetence, with being the kind of answer to, you know, what is a failed city, you know, on a Jeopardy, you know, quiz, right? So, yeah, the the perception of Detroit was very different from our experience of it, you know? I And it, it, it wasn't, I can remember, um, I can remember people fleeing to these other places. And I, I and I'm like, I remember the people who sold my mom our house hmm. on when we lived, we moved closer to Chandler Park Drive. We lived, we moved a few blocks north and they were fleeing Detroit because they were a white family and they were moving to Adrian. I'm not going to say because black people had moved on the block, but they were certainly fleeing and they moved to Adrian, Michigan. And, you know, I'm not trying to diss Adrian, Michigan, but really what was so great about where it was you were headed, you know what I mean? <laughs> and and that <laughs> and what happened in those places, right? right? What was going on I there? Mean, exactly. I mean, what happened to the state um is is that Reagan came into office and, and first attacked, you know, the pilots unions and then took on unions in general, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So what happened was attack on labor that like a lot of things happened in Michigan first, you know. And so economically, we were devastated statewide, but the myth of Black incompetence, the the racism made Detroit be kind of the singular story around that economic collapse. Um, But again, this film isn't about all of those things. This film is, is about, I'm thinking about the now and the future for sure, you know. Um, I don't know if it's true, but have you heard that myth that like Bill Gates bought, 
We, they, they're all kinds. I don't, maybe I'm saying some QAnon thing. I hope I'm not. But I heard a myth that Bill, I mean, I heard a rumor that Bill Gates bought like millions of square acres up in the UP, right? We know that for sure. That. People, yeah. People, yeah, we know for sure that people like Peter Thiel and these sure. other kind of billionaires were buying um, land in New Zealand, right? With the hope that uh, it was their hideout. It was their, their um it, you know, it was their bunker plan, basically, that when America collapsed, largely to so much of the disinformation that they were behind spreading, <laughs> that they would have this safe place to go. Of course, that's not safe because it can reach New Zealand, as we saw in the Christchurch shooting. Um, but but what is happening now when people have these kind of maps of, of a near future dystopia when it comes to climate is people have their eye on Michigan again. Yeah. Um, because we are the largest body of fresh water in the world. I think I, I got that right. Yeah, no, that's um, and right. If not, it's if, a great life. Okay, yeah. 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 And so in the height of the pandemic, you know, Whitmer had to declare, you know, this flood zone. And at first it was 100, you know, one in 100 years. Then it was like 300 years, you know. Um, and that was happening, you know, throughout this, well, in a particular part of the state. It wasn't happening here in Southeast Michigan. But in Detroit alone, we have been dealing with that phenomenon of what I'm calling the swollen Great Lakes. And we look at climate as mostly a coastal. When it comes to water, we're constantly mm -hmm. looking at the coast. Um, and so while I'm making Freshwater, this short film about memory and a deeply personal kind of poem, I and I'm in Fox Creek shooting in a basement, I'm seeing all of the ways that people in that neighborhood are practicing, you know, have these resilience practices, basically where they're jerry-rigging, you know, uh, sandbags and, you know, they're doing mm -hmm. all of these things to protect their homes from what's happening on Lake St. Clair. And that made me do, even as I was doing Freshwater, I then did a, a series, I produced three different videos, which became swollen. <laughs> um, right. And, and that'll show it the free. Yeah. And I yeah. want to talk about that when we, when we come back, we're going to have to, we, okay. uh, I'm overdue of course for a break. Cause I'm so engrossed in this conversation with dream. Uh, but when we come back, we're going to continue to talk about uh, fresh water. We'll talk about swollen and other uh, work that uh, dream Hampton is uh, producing and, will be part of the Free Film Festival later this year. Want to hear from you on the phones, too. Uh, what do you make of our relationship to water here in the city of Detroit and in Michigan? Uh, what do you think about the idea of climate and the impact it's having on our lives and what we ought to do? Also, what are your memories of Detroit before all of this, back in the 70s and 80s when so many of us were growing up here and how the city has changed since then. As always, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to social media and put comments there. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station.
This is Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Dream Hampton, a filmmaker, activist, and writer whose new experimental video short called Fresh Water is going to screen at the Museum of Contemporary Art Detroit starting today and running through August 14th. We're talking about the effect water has on our lives in so many different ways here in Southeast Michigan and in the state of Michigan. Uh, her film is about the way that water was affecting Detroiters uh, at the height of the of the pandemic and after. Uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Call and tell us about uh, the ideas uh, you have about water and our relationship to water here in Southeast Michigan. Uh, it's a powerful thing on both the good end of the spectrum and oftentimes on the bad end. Also, give us a call and tell us your memories of Detroit uh, from the 70s and 80s uh, and how different the city seems now um, many, many years later. As always, that number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. Um, before we get to Listener's Dream, I want to talk about this other film that you have worked on called, uh, called Swollen. Tell us what that's about. Yeah, so Eric Paul Howard and I, um, we, well, and Desmond, we, and so there were three of us, well, there were a handful of us that worked on um, on Freshwater, like literally five of us, five or six of us. So Invincible um, was my producer on this. Photographer Eric Paul Howard shot, and so did Desmond, filmmaker Desmond Love, um, both acted as DPs for me. We were in Desmond's neighborhood um, in Fox Creek shooting, um, in, you know, this kind of poem of a film. And when we were in Fox Creek, I saw the need for like a more straightforward, you know, uh, essay, get, getting back to the essay kind of film about the resilience practices, the failure of the city to support this neighborhood that is, you know, possibly going underwater, you know? And um, so we got a, a, a grant from Rockefeller Foundation, mm -hmm. and I basically re-granted it to three filmmakers. Uh, we uh, found a filmmaker through through working with organizations who are dealing with environmental racism and and um, just ringing the alarm about what's happening in the Midwest, we found filmmakers in Cleveland and in Milwaukee um, who were experiencing, you know, similar kind of flooding along, of course, Lakes Erie and Michigan. And so Swollen is three films by three different filmmakers in these three cities, Detroit, Milwaukee, and Cleveland about what is happening in their neighborhoods. And it's not, as, as one of the activists in Milwaukee says, it's not always coming from the sky. It's not about the rain. It's about what we have done on the ground. It's about all of the cement. It's about kind of the deforestation of cities. I also remember that quite clearly. I remember we had this huge tree in front of our house, um, the house I moved into down on um, Newport, like for closer to Chandler Park Drive. And I remember the city coming and taking away our tree. Hmm. Like, I, in Los Angeles, they did this, and then they had these helicopter patrols, like at mm -hmm. the height of, of so-called gang activity, right? Mm -hmm. It was like, and I don't know if deforestation is the right word that the city uses. It's just the only thing that comes to my mind now. It's like literally coming and taking away the trees in wow. a city. 
And the less green a city is, you know, the more calamity there is on a million levels with the air quality. Yeah. yeah, but but then also obviously flooding, like water having nowhere to go is about design. Um, and so anyway, in these three cities, you get to hear from activists and residents who are, you know, working with one another, quite frankly, to come up with solutions so that their, you know, their cities and neighborhoods also don't end up underwater. So it's not just lower Manhattan that may be underwater in a couple, you know, yeah, in a no, couple of decades. Lots of places. Yeah. Lots of places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Carmen in Detroit. Carmen, welcome to the show. Hi. Um, just wanted to comment. Uh, I grew up in southwest Detroit, um, still live here, and uh, we used to go to the Y, and um uh, we learned to swim there and went across the street to Clark Park and had crafts and played games. So that was great. Later on, after college or during college, I became one of the swimmobile people and playmobile people. So oh, you're kidding. Lots of great <laughs> memories of taking the swimmobile everywhere. Um, and it's funny because my sister and I were just talking about um, this yesterday um, and how much fun we had and how much um, fun the kids had. Um, and opening up the fire hydrants on hot yeah. summer days. Yeah. And we went to two neighborhoods a day and did that. So just <laughs> wanted to um, put those comments on there about how safe I felt growing up. And I am going to be 67 soon. So Yeah, um, yeah. that's great. Uh, Carmen, I, I, I don't think I've talked with anyone before who actually worked on this on the swimmobile. Uh, that's such <laughs> that's like so a, cool. a legendary mm-hmm. Detroit uh, uh, sort of image and icon. I guess there were people who had to who had to haul that thing around and, and watch all the kids. <laughs> <laughs> Carmen, I really appreciate the call and the comments. Let's go to uh, Peggy in Ridgeway. Peggy, welcome to the show. Hello. Uh, hey. This is Peggy in Berkeley. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. That's okay. First of all, I am sorry you've, you've been affected by un, undereducated people, undereducated people who don't know that we're all created equal. But I'm proud to be from Michigan with all our fresh water. And I think that we should all take care of it. And I'm trying to be very conscious of our environment and hope we all can take care of where we live. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, Peggy, I appreciate that. I mean, you know, there's there's all of this anxiety, again, about... uh, the way that uh, that the, the the climate is starting to change the way we live, uh, especially around here, and and uh, you know it's important to be to be mindful of it. Uh, Dream, before I have to let you go, I, I do want to give you a chance to talk just a little about, and I assume you've been following this, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this shooting in Grand Rapids of uh, an unarmed black man by. Uh, police officers. This is, uh, you know, uh, it's going to end up being a, a a very big deal. It's 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 becoming a big deal already in Grand Rapids, but it's just a reminder of I think um, a lot of the things that you're touching on in in not just these films, but um, but the rest of your work, which is that um, we just are not we're not in a place. Uh, where uh, where African American life 
matters in the way that it should, where it's valued. Um, you know, the, the, the responses I'm already seeing about, well, that person should have done what the police officer said. That person shouldn't have tried to, to grab a, uh, a, you know, a, a, a taser that somehow that justifies the end of his life. There is, there is uh, a different standard for us when it, when it comes to these things. Absolutely. I'm going to be, I've been following Naraj work who's um, reporting in the Detroit Free Press and mm -hmm. apparently he has an interview with Patrick Loya's family and I look forward to hearing that. It reminds me, this by the way, uh, Freshwater is a turning away from that because, as you know, Stephen, this is how I spend a lot of my days, like organizing against sure. police terror around um, prisons. And, um, and so it was a respite. But yes, the world comes knocking. And here we are with one of the most heinous cases in the country right now, right here in Michigan. And what should never happen is an encounter with the police shouldn't be fatal, you know. And, and, and we don't need to, to the, the pointing out the hypocrisy never seems to get through. But, no. you know, we have so many examples of, you know, um, white folks in encounters with police where they behave terribly, you know. Um, white people with know, guns who don't get shot. White by people the with guns who don't get shot by the police, who get who get given a Burger King, you know, as happened with Dylan Roof after mm -hmm. he was arrested and after he killed, you know, people who were praying in a black church, um, you know, not to mention what happened in Kenosha. And we could go on and on, you know. Uh, yes, uh, Patrick experienced terror, you know, seeing the police. It doesn't take long even as an immigrant to get acclimated um, to, you know, w what it's like to be in a um, black body, you know, having to encounter police. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, sure, there'll be conversations about training and we've been having those for decades. Um, you know, they should be able to do their job without um, inflicting lethal and fatal, you know, harm. Um, at the same time, I'm, I'm on the other end of the spectrum with that. You know, I'm absolutely... Um, about defunding the police and finding new solutions. Um, so much of what is happening around policing shouldn't even be encounters, you know? So many of the stops that end up being fatal should never have happened. Um, and, you know, that's another conversation, but I will say that, yes, Naraj Ward, who was doing this amazing reporting, I imagine you may have him or someone else on. And, and when he talks to this family, who, of course, you know, this... This man, you know, escaped, you know, the Congo, which for very complicated reasons um, has become a dangerous place. Yep. Not unconnected from the fact that I'm talking to you on a laptop right now that's fueled by a mineral called Colton. So while we want to protect our fresh water, you know, in the heart of Africa and Congo, so much of our lives are being fueled by their minerals. By and their, it's made that yeah. place. Exactly. And it's made that place a war zone. Yeah. Um, so... I would recommend, you know, this is off topic, but I'd recommend Raul Peck's Lumumba. Uh, Raul Peck is the incredible filmmaker that did, did, did I Am Not Your Negro, which is mm -hmm. a documentary about James Baldwin. But he did a scripted feature about Patrice Lumumba, the, um, the leader and revolutionary from the Congo who 
um, had the CIA not um, orchestrated his assassination, you know, which is on paper and, and admitted by the agency, that place, that region would be a different place today. So that here again, we are actually literally responsible for Patrick's, you know, immigration to the United States for a number of reasons. Um, and he comes here and he finds himself, utter, finds himself utterly unsafe. Yeah. And I feel yeah. so badly for his parents. Yeah. Dream, we never have enough time when you come on the show to talk about all the things I want to talk about. But <laughs> I am always really yeah. grateful that you. Uh, I'm grateful that you for you too, Stephen. Yeah, thanks so Thank much you. for joining us. And again, uh, Freshwater is uh, showing at MoCAD uh, today through August 14th. Go and check that out for sure. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to hear from former U.S. Poet Laureate Billy Collins about his new collection of poems titled Whale Day and Other Poems, as well as his upcoming appearance at the Midwest Literary Walk. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and this thanks, as always, thanks for joining. For anyone who's tried, writing poetry is really, really hard. It can be difficult to know if you are actually writing something that's gripping or if you're even telling a coherent story. Where do you even start? And how do you know when it's appropriate to end? Here with us today is one of the most popular poets in America, Billy Collins. He recently wrote Whale Day and other poems, and He'll be speaking at the Midwest Literary Walk in Chelsea, Michigan. He will be appearing at the festival Saturday, April 23rd at 4 p.m. at the Washington Street Education Center Auditorium. Billy, welcome to Detroit Today. Oh, thanks. Good to be here. Yeah. So let's talk about how you became a poet. Where did you get the inspiration to pattern your life around this art form? Well, it's a long story, but I can I can condense it into... Uh... One comment that a uh, colleague of mine made when she introduced me at a reading a long time ago, uh, she said that when she met me that I was a professor who happened to be a poet, and now I'm a poet who happened to be a professor. <laughs> so at some point in my life, uh, I mean, I got a PhD and started teaching English literature and did poetry, I would say, on the side. But at some point, it kind of got centralized, and um, as John Updike but it, how he began to write, or became a writer. He said it was like being swallowed by a hobby. Hmm. Swallowed by a hobby. That's such great. That's such a great image. Uh, so, you are recommending reading uh, poetry for ten thousand hours uh, in order to be proficient in it. Uh, that's a lot of reading and indulging in the material. Tell me how you came up with uh, with that idea. Well, that's a... Uh, <clears throat> Malcolm Gladwell talks about 10,000 hours, too. I got right? it from Malcolm Gladwell, and he yeah. got it from somebody else. I yeah. mean, it's been around, kicked around by, uh, for a long time, just like in the uh, kind of Chinese version of life, uh, the world has 10,000 things in it. Now, that would seem like a lot um, of things. Um, many centuries ago, <laughs> where we have more and more things. Mm -hmm. um, well, I, I think the teachers of poetry, at least they were, I've never taken a workshop. I've conducted a lot of workshops, but I've never taken one. Uh, I learned to write poetry by reading it, and I think that's the way you learn, not by sitting in a seminar table 
listening to a poet who is well-established talk about his or her poetry, but by reading uh, English poetry and getting used to the iambic uh, measures of poetry. Um, <clears throat> poetry, I think all art, is imitative. You're, you're, um, you're trying to be like other poets, and I, uh, until you find your own voice, that really is all you're left with. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to talk about uh, Whale Day and other other uh, poems. Uh, tell me about this book. Uh, what are the overarching themes in it? And I wonder if you can read us a selection from it. Uh, <clears throat> well, I mean, I'm sort of, I, I write poems very individually. Um, I, and so my books are basically collections of poems that I've written over the past uh, time uh, when I was able to write that many good poems. In other words, this, the only theme in the book is me uh, and and the way I look at the world. And you mm. might say the ancient themes of love and death. Um, but otherwise, uh, there's a book, there's a poem in here called Whale Day, and I just, when I, when I title a book, I just find uh, a, a poem whose title might fit on a book and uh, and uh, just be uh, an eye grabber. Um, well, let me read you a sonnet here. It's a poem that became somehow became a sonnet as I was writing it. <clears throat> and I wrote it after I read two poems by Elizabeth Bishop. One poem was called um, Sleeping on the Ceiling, and the other poem was called Sleeping, Standing Up. And I thought uh, I would add a, a conservative version of those. So my poem is called Sleeping on My Side. Hmm. Every night, no matter where I am, when I lie down, I turn my back on half the world. At home, it's the East I ignore with its theaters and silverware as I face the adventurous West. But when I'm out on the road in some hotel's room 213 or 402, I could be pointed anywhere yet I hardly care as long as you are there facing the other way. So we are defended in all degrees. And my left ear is pressing down as if listening for hoofbeats in the ground. Mm. So there you have a little tension between yeah. the, the sophisticated East and the wild West. Which yeah. Is probably deriving from my watching cowboy movies. <laughs> And and th at the end there, where you're clearly kind of centering it around or in the middle of a relationship uh, yeah. of some sort. I, I, well, I didn't see that coming. That's, <laughs> well, that's the sort. Neither did I. I mean, that's the. Uh, I don't. I don't see these endings coming. They they uh, appear when I get there. Yeah. But uh, that's partly the reason it became a sonnet is that it became a love poem. And um, and there's a, there's a sense in the poem uh, also that arises uh, with this imagery that um, that the world is a dangerous place. I mean, when the when the when the loved one is with me, uh, facing the other way in bed, uh, we are defended in all degrees. Yes. And I'm also even when I'm sleeping, I'm listening for hoofbeats in the ground. Um, <laughs> so there's there's some kind of danger lurking at the end there. Mm. Yeah. So uh, you talk a lot also about aging and funerals and death in this collection. Um, oh, I wonder yeah. what, what was inspiring. What was inspiring that as you were writing it? 
Well, it's always been uh, <clears throat> mortality has always been one of the deepest themes in English poetry, or even pre pre English poetry. Um, where one of the great themes is we're not getting any, any younger, and uh, I'm, I'm a really poignant example of that. So um, uh, I don't know. It, need, it doesn't need to really be defended. I think uh, Kafka was asked, uh, what is the meaning of life? And he said, the meaning of life is that it ends. Hmm. That's basically it. And the sense of uh, carpe diem, you know, seizing the day is sort of the oldest theme known in poetry um, after <clears throat> after cave paintings, at least. And um, the reason you're asked to seize the day is that you don't have an infinite number of days left. And in the liner notes to this book, Whale Day, I mentioned the thrill of mortality. And uh, the uh, the people at Random House, or someone thought that was a little too much. I don't know why, but I think being alive is um, is made to be thrilling by the fact that it's going to end. Yeah, yeah. So when people come out to see you uh, next week at the Midwest Literary Walk, what uh, what will they what will they find? Well, they'll find me, and <clears throat> that's um, that's worth coming out for. Yes, I'm, I'm an, that I'm alone is child, worth it. <laughs> so I, that that in itself is worth the price of admission. Um, well, I'm going to read a lot of poems, and I'm going to talk about them, um, and there'll be a chance to ask questions and have a have a conversation about it. Um, but I think the experience of the poems is a, is a movement from uh, something familiar to something rather odd and unfamiliar, like the image of me in bed uh, listening for hoofbeats in the ground is a little strange. Um, and Tony Hoagland, the late wonderful poet, um, said that there's, the, in po- and he likes poems, and I like poems that begin with a kind of recognition um, the, the the reader knows exactly where we are, and that move into a kind of disorientation. And he said the first one is called, he calls it a gong. It's like something that wakes you up and you recognize it. And the ending is more like a bong, like something that hits you softly on the head. So um, so I think of disor- a, you know, mild disorientation at the, at the end of a poem as as being a literary pleasure. So if, if and I'll try to make that a pleasure for my audience Saturday. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Billy Collins, former U.S. poet laureate and uh, author of Whale Day and other poems, uh, who will be at the Midwest Literary Walk next week. And Chelsea, thanks so much for joining you're, us here. You're very welcome. Yeah. Okay, that is going to do it for us today and actually for this week. Uh, Come back on Monday when we are going to talk about the police killing of unarmed black man Patrick Leoya in Grand Rapids. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again next week.